Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yordana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachi Kitzvot, DAP Kuf Dalet, page 104. Uh, so we're about to finish up Masachi Kitzvot in about a week. Uh, please uh, pay attention to our information about our Sam. We hope that you can join us. That will be on October 30th, God willing. Um, and that information is on our WhatsApp group and also on our Facebook page, or you can email us at talkingtalmud at gmail.com. Um, we continue now with the death of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and a lot of important um, biographical information about him. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it again today, although I think most of it is very, very interesting. Um, but a few other little tidbits here is that actually starts at the bottom of um, Kuf Gimel. But bet, Rabbi Bebet Sharim Habe, Ela Kevin Dechalash, Tuhi Litsipori. So Rabbi Yehuda Nassim lived in Beit Sharim, and then he became sick, and he moved to Tzipori, uh, because it was at a high altitude, and the air was scented. So I think this is an important point to pay attention to, because these two particular cities, Beit Sharim and Tzipori, it's worth it to spend a little bit of time as you're reviewing the staff, just to Google them quickly or look them up in Wikipedia, or if you have an Encyclopedia Judaica, these are very famous Tanaitic cities. Uh, remember, the Tanaim were largely, uh, you know, in the north of Israel. Um, and um, it's interesting to see how they describe these different cities and the idea of somebody sort of moving somewhere for health. I'm sure all of us have heard of this before. Um, but that's, you know, one of the things that's important about Rabbi Huda Nasi that he had to move to um, Sipori. And then the Gemara goes on to describe the actual day uh, that he died itself, that the Chachamim actually uh, decreed a fast. And they also said that nobody should actually say, that nobody should actually sort of say out loud that he died. And again, I think this is reflective of how uh, painful this was and what a moment it was in Jewish history when he actually um, passed away. But what follows then is this very interesting sort of push and pull that we see described taking place between sort of the upper world and the lower world, right? Silka Amate de Rabbi Igra. So the maidservant of uh, Rabbi Huda Hanasi, she went to the roof, Amra, and she said, El Rabbi. Those high up are, you know, they want Rabbi Huda Hanasi and those below, meaning those of us on earth also want Rabbi Huda Hanasi, meaning everybody was davening for him to probably stay alive. He was obviously very sick, but she could feel this sort of tension between like he was in this in-between between going to Shamayim or staying on earth. And so the prayer she gives is may it be the will of God that the lower world should impose on the upper world. But once she saw how many times he would have to keep going to the bathroom, again, he had some kind of intestinal illness, and remove his tefillin, because you can't take tefillin into the bathroom, and then put it on and saw that he was suffering, she changes her prayer and she says, She says, may be the will of God that the upper world should impose their will on the lower world. In other words, she no longer prays for him to stay in this world and actually prays that he does die. And I think we learned something 
very valuable there. I actually recently had a conversation with a friend who is a very, very elderly mother, someone who's in her 90s and has lived a very, very full life and unfortunately is really suffering now with some medical illness. And, you know, we had a conversation like, what is it that we sometimes pray for when somebody is sick? And I think the insight here is, is that sometimes when we see a certain type of suffering at the end of life, you know, she was able to sort of shift her expectations of what the prayer should be and sort of recognize in a way that there was almost a selfishness or a, you know, it just wasn't a fair expectation of where this was going. It was clear that he was going to die and to really think about what exactly it is that you're davening for. And in the end, she basically davens for his suffering to be relieved, right? That was the more important prayer than to say, please keep Rabbi Yehuda and Nasi on earth, even though I know that if he were to stay alive, he were going to continue to suffer. And so I think we learn a tremendous thing about prayer and really thinking about what we want to be praying for, particularly in times of illness, uh, through this particular story. So this, my comment here is not about illness, but is, is I would say, a kind of a quiet nister here, Yerdana, on the fact that we've just read, you know, the end of the Torah with the death of Moshe Rabbeinu. And here we have the daf that talks about the death of Rabbi Yudha Nasi, who's the, you know, the cons- consolidator, the compiler of the Mishnah, and that dual role of the Torah Shabbat and the Torah Shabbat the deaths of the two writers, shall we say, um, you know, coming so close in, in our experience of the of the text themselves, I think is kind of an interesting juxtaposition and perhaps an important one. Um, I think that your point about um, you know, what do we pray for when one is suffering, when anyone is suffering, I think is always an important question. And I feel like that's where it, it becomes easiest perhaps to say, you know, that that the person should have their best possible outcome or uh, I, the words are always going to change depending on the circumstances. But um, yeah, I, I don't think that this is easy. Um, right. I do but think, it's I think it's to see how she changes that prayer. Like she, I think it's suffering and, and she's like, you know what? He, he deserves to, he deserves to go to the El Yonim. Um, Okay. And then just pay attention to the rest of this. The, the Gemara gets into some nice, a guy talk about who greets a righteous person how is a, a Russia greeted and things like that. And then we get on to uh, the final mission of this pair. So again, we're back to this question of the widow who's sort of any woman in the times of the mission sort of swings between her father's house or her husband's house. And so the question is what happens to somebody who's widowed for a lengthy period of time and obviously never remarries. So it says anytime that she is in her father's house, right, but is obviously still being supported by her husband's estate, by her husband's heir, go back to Batalliolam. She can always collect her marriage contract. In other words, her husband could die. She goes back to her father's house. She has basically until whenever to collect her ketuba. Kozman but if she remains in her husband's house, go back to Batalliolam. She has only 25 years at which she can collect that ketuba. And after that, if she doesn't claim it, she can no longer collect it. Um, because we say, basically, if she lived there for 25 years and was you know, basically sustained by her husband's household, right? Um, and you know, was essentially spending the money or was getting money from the heirs, right? 
she basically has spent the money that was equivalent to her ketubah, right? Like she can't ask for it anymore. They've treated her very well for 25 years. She's not entitled to that money anymore. Debre Rabbi Meir, Shamar Mishum, Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel. So this is what uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Meir says, who said this in the name of Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel. So Rabbi Meir's chiddush here is, which you'll see the Gemara discuss a little bit more, is that it's sort of like, that ketuba got paid out over a period of 25 years. The Chachamim have a different opinion. They say, As long as she's in her husband's house, she can collect that ketuba whenever she wants. But if she's in her father's house, she only has 25 years because the assumption is if she waits 25 years and she sort of has waived her right to it. So, Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim have opposite opinions here what to do. Meita, let's say she dies and she never collected her ketubah. Yersheh maskirin ketubata edusrim b'chameshanim. Her heirs have another 25 years within which to collect that ketubah. I mean, I, I found this mission to be fascinating that there is sort of so much leeway and time given to a woman to collect her ketubah. And my question on this is, is sort of like, how common was this to happen? So I know, Anne, you're going to read a part of Gemara that sort of gives a real-life example um, that seems to be a little bit different than the Mishnah itself. But I, I found this Mishnah to be very, very interesting. Like, I, I just had so many questions. Like, how common were these things? Did people really give up the right to their ketubah? Why wouldn't you want your ketubah right away? So I was left with more questions than actual answers with this uh, with this Mishnah. So, right. So I'm going to pick up the Gemara here on Ahmed Bet where it really gives us, the Gemara really gives us a case of this 25 years. So we've got a complicated relationship situation here where the mother-in-law of Rabbi Chia Aricha, he was called Aricha because he was tall, like the word Aroch means long, right? So the mother-in-law was also the wife of his brother and and she was a, a widow and she ended up staying in her father's house, right? She went home after she became a widow back home. So the Rabbi Chia, right? Because he's the wife of the brother, I guess. No, she's the wife of his brother. The brother has died. So in any case, he's the heir, I suppose. And he is providing for her. For 25 years, he's provided the mizonot, uh, the sustenance for her while she is living at home from her father at her father's house. Meaning, he's doing the provision from from his brother's estate, which is her husband, her 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 dead husband. Lesof amrale havli mizonai. So at the end of tw- these 25 years, she says to him, "Give me my mizonot, right?" Amarla late lach mizone. You don't get. You don't have anymore. You don't get the right anymore to demand mizonot. Avli ketuba. So she says, then give me my ketuba. Amarla lo mizone lo mizone itla velo ketuba itlach. He says you don't have either the right to the mizonot or the right to the ketuba. Meaning you've. We. This is the twenty-five year mark. So she takes him to court, and the court, the judge is Rabba Barshela, and he says, He says, "What was the what was the basis of this case?" Meaning Rabba Barshela says to Rabbi Aricha, 
And Rabbi Chia Rechus says back to him, Amarlei, Zineti Esrim Chameshanim Bevei Nasa, Bachayai Demar Bechatfai Amta La. He says, I provided for her for these 25 years in the house of her father, and I swear it. He swears it by the life of the of Mar, Mar here meaning Rabbi Barshela, by your life that I provided her, that I did this, that I gave her the Mizonot, you know, on my own doing, on my own shoulders, he says. Amar Leh, so Rabbi Barshela says to him, Tama Maya Marabanan calls Manshi Bavet Baala, go back to Batalio Lam, the Amrina, Mishum, Kisufahu, the Lotava. So Rabbi Barshela says to him, So what's the reason that the sages said? That as long as the almana, as long as the widow is in the house of her husband, she can collect the ketubah. May isn't it because we're talking about embarrassment that she didn't ask for the ketubah? Because there she, because if she's in the husband's house and she's the heirs, or in this case the brother-in-law, right, is treating her well, so then she's not gonna, she's not gonna like, kind of rise up to say that she wants her ketubah. So here too, in this case. Um, he says, because of the embarrassment, that's I meaning she was getting the mizonot that she didn't ask for the ketubah. So you treated her, you know, right, according to all this time that she's been in her father's house. But at this point, she's entitled to the ketubah. Go give her the ketubah. And this seems to be, you know, very much a, a real life case, you know, in terms of we've got the details and the and the personalities. In the end, lo ashkach, Rabbi Aricha did not do what Rabbi Barshela said to do. Katavla adrachta He does not give her the ksuba, and Rabbi Barshela writes an authorization, like an sure a permission, um, for her to come and seize the property of Rabbi, Rabbi Chiaricha, meaning she's entitled, right? She's going to repossess his stuff because she's entitled to the ketubah. Atalakamidurava, Amarlei, Chazi Mar Hechi Danan, Amarlei, Shapir Danach. So Rabbi Chiaricha goes before Rava, like a second opinion in the court, and he says, you know, look, look, Rava, look what Rabbi Barshila did to me, how he judged, and Rava says to him, he made the right judgment, meaning, Rabbi Barzila was right here that Rabbi Chiyari has to give the ketuba money, and so then, um, well, the court, the the case here goes on to say, you know, the woman says to Rava that he should go and give me back all the things that were grown on the property that that she technically had a right to all these years, and it gets more complicated. But what I find interesting here is the way this case, meaning even to the fact this this level of judgment. Um, gives us the application of the Mishnah. Or, right, or but what's the application of the is, Machloket of the Mishnah. Right? right, but presumably it's not following the opinion of the Chachamim, because the Chachamim said if she lives in her father's house, you only have 25 years, which is apparently what the case is here. So it's unclear to me why Rabbi feels the sock was the correct sock. I think it's because of this case of that the Le'olam, you know, is a matter of like, what were the terms? How did they all get along? And this factor of being embarrassed, right? I think that's a really interesting wrinkle to say that because she's, she might have been embarrassed to come before the heirs, or in this case, the brother-in-law to say, I want the ketubah, and that's taken as, as a good reason for her delay in asking. I, I think it's really interesting. Right. And so I guess the piece that's missing for me then is like, 
should there be a Mishnah, right? Or should there be a halacha where it's sort of like it's on the heirs to give the ketubah as opposed to the woman asking for it? Like, there's great sensitivity in this story, right? The idea that like, yeah, it may be hard for a widow to get what she actually deserves, right? We understand that a widow is at a disadvantage. So my question is then sort of like, why is it not, the Mishnah is phrased as sort of like the widow has to go out to get her ketubah. But we don't necessarily see that like the onus is on the estate or the heirs to make sure that they gave her her ketubah. That to me yeah. is like sort of what's missing a little bit here. I'm with you. I, it seems like once we can acknowledge that she might be embarrassed, then maybe the or or let the court intervene. Like there should be some system that should prevent her need to come forward to ask for it. If the very fact that her embarrassment is grounds for later, you know, later delayed payment because she wasn't willing to come forward. It's a good question. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stop on our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.